Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. I'm Ido Vok in Paris. It is Monday, the 28th of December. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, we've reached the end of the year, and we're going to take this episode of World Review to look back over the year and ask the questions with which we often start our episodes of World Review, namely, what will be remembered from this period of time in history. Usually we ask that about the preceding seven days, but I think now is a good time as the year draws to a close to ask what will 2020 be remembered for in history. So I've got a kind of a short list of, of questions about moments from the year that will go down in the history books for their significance. And I'm going to run through those and see what we all think will end up in those said history books. So let's kick that straight off then with the obvious question, which is how will the pandemic in 2020, I hasten to add, it's far from over, be remembered in history. Do you want to kick us off, Emily? I think that, I mean, as with the pandemic 100 years ago, it will be remembered as this horrible, crushing event that took a great toll on on human life. But I also think that one of the differences between 1918 and 2020 was is the political situation and the way in which I think this pandemic has really shown some of the weaknesses in some of our our countries. You know, I I think that the failures of aspiring autocrats have shown through. I think that the the dangers of paranoia of authoritarian regimes, the inefficiency of some democracies in dealing with it. And so I think looking back on it, that not, not only will we remember just the tragic loss of life that came with this pandemic, but the kinds of challenges to our different forms of governance that it that it brought. That's actually similar to, 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 to my take on this, which is that, yeah, it has been a revealing pandemic. And it has, what I think is particularly interesting, and this cuts across lots of different regions and societies, is that it's often exposed the weakest link in the chain in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a given society. This was a point made by James Crabtree, an occasional New Statesman contributor based in Singapore for us earlier on in the year when he was writing from Singapore, about how even Singapore, this sort of technocratic kind of dream state, this, this, this city state that manages to, to get everything right and be super efficient and, and had kept the numbers of infections and deaths down very low until the virus took hold in migrant accommodation. And that is a is a is, a, is an aspect of Singapore society that is insecure, underregulated, where 
poor conditions prevail unusually for that society. And James's point was that even, even Singapore had these sort of these chinks in its armor. And I think the same has been true as the years gone, gone on in other parts of the world. You know, where I am in, in Germany, we had a series of outbreaks in meat packing and processing plants, which has shone the light on poor practices implemented in pursuit of Germany's love of inexpensive meat dishes. In other countries, it's you know exposed weaknesses in the relationship between central government and regional government. In other countries, you know, Sweden even, you know, has come a cropper with its sort of exceptionalist kind of liberal approach to lockdowns, which you know you could you can you can trace back to weaknesses you can say in the sort of the Swedish approach. And so I think that the interesting thing is that right across different societies. In India, of course, you had the, the story where the story of huge numbers of workers in the cities traveling back to the the rural areas that they came from when the lockdown was imposed by Prime Minister Narendra Modi and tr- bringing the virus with them, again, pointing to sort of weaknesses and inequities in India society. So it just, I just think it's been a sort of fascinating r- revealer of what is weak or what is vulnerable in any given society. What, what about you, Ido? How do you, think, how do you think this will be sort of seen in retrospect? My take is similar to you, you two, and it's that this pandemic has, the countries that have dealt well with this pandemic are either the ones that were very well prepared for a pandemic of this type, so particularly countries in East Asia like Taiwan and South Korea, which had experienced SARS already and had been prepared for this kind of disease and knew the steps to take to combat this type of disease. Or it was states which were not that prepared for this type of pandemic, but had a high capacity to adapt. So particularly places in Africa, for instance, which hasn't had a pandemic that has been as bad as in Europe, obviously for some structural factors, but also in part because the states were able to adapt quite rapidly, knowing that they would need to be a bit more nimble than perhaps some other some other countries. And And by contrast, these countries that were ranked really well in the pandemic preparedness, places like Western Europe, places like the US, which before coronavirus were seen to be really well prepared, you know, they had high state capacity, they had very good healthcare systems and so on, have been brought virtually to their knees Mm. because they were unable to adapt and to change the way that their their strategy rapidly enough. And, And I think the contrast between either fairly weak state capacity and preparedness, but ability to adapt versus high state preparedness for exactly the right the right kind of pandemic will come to be seen as one of the kind of macro themes of of this pandemic i i notice we're all talking about things that were in place before the virus struck so whether it's a mentality of humility or complacency whether it's the weaknesses that i talked of where whether it was the the issues that emily brought up it, we're, we're all we're all referring to the idea that a lot of this was sort of in the works from the moment that the virus started to spread. I wonder if you, relatedly, either of you want to speculate on whether this will be seen as a more of a, a kind of year that simply accentuated things that were already happening. I mean, you often hear it, hear it said that, oh, 
COVID-19 has accelerated trends that were already happening, you know, with regards to, I don't know, the death of the high street and the growth of online commerce, for example, or the rise of China and the sort of the relative decline of the US. But you could also see it, and many people have suggested that it is a sort of break, a breaking point, a sort of the end of one era and the start of another one. Would either of you care to, to reflect on which which of those it might end up being? I don't want to downplay how unprecedented and damaging and life-altering the pandemic has been. But I I do think, and obviously it's new, but I do think that it's the former and that what we are seeing play out has long been in the works. I, I'm thinking particularly of the way in which the pandemic laid bare socioeconomic and racial inequality here in my own country, or the kind of disinformation that we have around the pandemic, the politics of grievance that we've seen play out in this pandemic that's not new, right? Mm. That was already here. And this created the conditions. I mean, the, the, the thing is, the virus is not a metaphor. And I don't mean to suggest that it is. But it has, in addition to caused, again, tremendous loss of life, it has made evident what was already there or, or brought to the fore what was already there more than it has like, created you know, this new this new reality. I guess the shorter way of saying that is that we were already in this new reality, but we didn't know it yet. A question that I sort of grappled with a bit this year was whether actually the kind of the real dividing point of our of our era came last year, as we record this, so 2019, with the kind of the wave of global protests in Chile and Lebanon and Hong Kong and so forth, which did continue through into this year. That's that's a reality that spans the the the, the beginning point of the pandemic. And this has also been another year of protests, some of them related to the pandemic. So, you know, Black Lives Matter, for example, did deal with themes of racial inequalities in the impact of the virus. You had people take to the streets in a lot of countries to protest against government on virus response. But I wonder if, I mean, it really depends on how that then develops over the next few years. Is this some sort of efflorescence of global civil society going to turn into something more more defining of our era? I mean, in which case, perhaps COVID will be seen as a, particularly if the vaccines are as successful as we all hope they will be, whether the virus will be seen as a sort of a, a subplot within that longer term story. I wouldn't underestimate our capacity to, humanity's capacity to just want to move on. So if you, yeah. the Spanish flu killed 15 million people and World War One killed 40 million people. But if you think about the prevalence of World War One versus Spanish flu in literature and what we commemorate historically, popular consciousness more generally. I mean, it barely it barely penetrates. It's, yeah. it's barely there. My my impression is that, and certainly my own kind of view is that I, people just really want to get back to normal and start doing what they were doing before and traveling and seeing people and doing cultural activities and also hopefully all the all the death and misery stops too. And I, I wouldn't be surprised to see this as almost a sort of ellipsis in 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 people's lives you know it's a lost year but it might disappear from from our consciousness and from the way we think more rapidly than perhaps is obvious at the moment yeah and that would be the exactly the sort of subject where journalists people in our profession would have a bit of a blind spot in that we're paid to think about this these things in in great detail and sort of you know focus on them all day every day and i think to those who would for whom this has just been a whether a personal inconvenience or a personal tragedy, the, the need to linger over an event like this might be might be less than we anticipate. Well, with that, I, I'd like to move on to our next question about 2020 in history. And that is, I'd like us all to cite a bad news story, not the pandemic, we've just talked about the pandemic, that will go down in history. So something bad that happened in 2020 that will have long lasting significance. 
So I think for this, I will go with the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, who is a Russian opposition leader who was poisoned with Novichok in the city of Tomsk in August by a team which we now know with virtual certainty was operating under the guise of the FSB, possibly with authorization coming from very high in the, in the Russian state. And we know this because of an investigation by Bellingcat. I think this is really quite, it was really quite significant and it signaled a change in, in the rules in Russia, you know, because this Navalny was, was poisoned and it was a real attempt by the Russian state to get rid of a political opponent, which is not unprecedented, but certainly hadn't really been expected in that way. And so I think it, what happens with Navalny, who's still in exile in Germany, will come to define Russian politics in the next few years, I think. Ironically, because the poisoning failed, and so he's he's gained a lot more notoriety, in particular being able to humiliate the security services by exposing who most likely attempted to poison him. So a bad news story with a, with a silver lining, I suppose. Emily, what, what, what about you? Uh, can I say the US election? <laughs> you know, I, I just think that everything surrounding the election, by which I mean the president actively trying to undermine our democratic process, I do think that that will have negative ramifications for years to come. There are millions of people who do not believe that Joe Biden is the president-elect. Trump is calling them to Washington, D.C. on January 6th, which is the day that Congress is meant to meet to certify the Electoral College vote. And I think that although he did not pull off a coup, or we don't think that he's going to pull off a coup, you know, that Trump and, and those who either cheered him on or stood by and didn't say anything has has done some real damage to American democracy, which I don't think was in great shape before this year. So that, that'll be my, my bad news story. Do you see 2020 being referred back to, in US politics at least, as the sort of the point at which the groundwork was laid for a more successful bid to undermine US democracy? Because there is a sort of positive gloss on this, isn't there, which is that, well, you know, it, it was unbelievably ugly and what Trump tried to do was horrific, but he doesn't look like he's going to get away with it. The American system sort of withstood his challenges. Is it that you think that the norms that were broken in the last months in US politics will be trampled more effectively by some other figure further down the road? I do. I think that if he had had a slightly better, less obvious case, right, if he had not sort of declared fraud and all these different, if, if there had been a slightly more appealing legal challenge, he would have had conservative lawyers sign up to join him to take it to the courts. We know that America's on the road to autocracy when their bid doesn't take them through Four Seasons Total Landscape. Right, exactly. And like your lawyer isn't Rudy Giuliani. It's been tried, right? So now it can be tried again. Yeah. There's a phrase in German politics that I, about the irreversibility of things like this, which is you can turn an aquarium into a fish stew, but you can't turn a fish stew into an aquarium. So... Exactly. Well said, German expression. <laughs> My bad news story, I think, I think that may prove to be particularly historically significant is what's happened in Brazil over the course of the last year. We all knew that Jair Bolsonaro, Brazil's president, was a bad guy with 
authoritarian tendencies. But the, the way in which he not only mismanaged the COVID pandemic in Brazil, which, as I understand, it currently has the second highest death rate after the US and the third highest infection rate after the US and India. Not only did he mismanage it, but the way that he used the kind of the chaos of the, the pandemic, the protest against him, the, the norms or the rules that, that he was meant to be imposing as a responsible leader to vulgarize Brazilian politics, trample over norms. You know, this was a man who not only, you know, mocked the medical advice about mask wearing and social distancing, who used moments of high drama to sort of style himself as a sort of autocratic strongman leader, you know, riding out on a horseback to, to greet crowds of supporters. He threatened to, send, to, to, to turn the military against Brazilian judges. He's also presided over, particularly worryingly for the world at large, the highest rate of deforestation in the Amazon in 12 years and sort of flirtations with sort of ethnic nationalism of the sort that even Trump didn't dabble in. And I think that, you know, we just talked about the US system having more or less survived for now, at least its challenge of of the Trump crisis. You know, Brazil, unfortunately, doesn't have the depth of civic society institutions and norms that the US democracy does. And this is a country that was seen as a great hope for the world. So recently, you know, t- you go back 10 years, Brazil was seen as the this sort of this fantastic source of optimism and, and, and possibility. You know, you had uh, President Lula was in control and seemed to be implementing some sort of progressive policies. Its economy was doing well. It was seen as a successful, pluralist, multi-ethnic democracy, you know, a kind of a great hope of the emerging world. And, and, and now, frankly, Despite the disastrous year that the, the country's had, it's quite possible that Bolsonaro will be re-elected in 2022. He's very successfully taken credit for sort of welfare checks that were sent out to support people during the lockdown. And, you know, if you multiply the damage that he's done to Brazil's democracy and society over the last 12 months by at least another couple of years and possibly a longer period beyond that if he wins re-election, and you could imagine Brazil getting into an extremely dark place indeed. So that, that's my bad news story for this year. So with that, let's turn to positivity. And I'd like to hear from us all a good news story that we think will go down in history. Emily, do you want to do you want to kick us off? First of all, I can't believe how quickly the scientific community mobilized to find vaccines for the coronavirus pandemic. So to me, that's a good news story. And relatedly, we would be remiss if we did not mention as part of the good news of 2020, that polio was officially eradicated on the African continent this mm-hmm. year, which according to the World Health Organization, is, quote, one of the greatest public health achievements of our time, end quote. So I I think both of those are, we obviously still need to see how the distribution of the vaccine goes. But, but to my mind, both of those are two solid pieces of good news. What yeah. about you, Ido? First of all, the protests in Belarus showed that there is a really strong pro-democracy movement, which was unable to be tamped down by pretty um, brutal repression. And I actually think this year has weirdly not been quite as bad for international cooperation as it might have been billed to be at the beginning of the pandemic. There was kind of a lot of talk at the beginning when when borders were, were closing and links between countries were, were being shuttered and so on, that this might be an end to globalisation and to, to, to international cooperation. And there's been some of that, I think, but... By and large, it's actually been, in my view, a, not a terrible year for internationalism. So some anti-corporation candidates were defeated in elections. 
for instance, in Europe, there's been a Europe-wide approach to procuring vaccines, which is not only good for solidarity, but also benefited countries by getting doses for, for lower prices than they would have been able to buying, buying in, in less bulk. But again, it's kind of some pushback against this idea of, of nationalism and national insularity that was that was predicted. I mean, it's, it's not been a great year for international cooperation, but but it's, it's not been quite as bad as was predicted. Well, actually, I was just going to say, I think that's a good point. And I mean, there too, we could refer to the protests. I mean, the, 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 the way that the Black Lives Matter protests took off around the world. And we're often sort of, what, what was particularly interesting was seeing those adapted for different countries. So the, there was this sort of inspirational moment that came out of the US after the, the, the murder of George Floyd. And then that spread. But I think, I think firstly, interesting as an illustration of America's enduring sort of soft power, its ability to, to inspire these sort of acts, but also the way that then you had other movement, movements in other countries recast it for their own, for their own society. So uh, to go back to Brazil, uh, there it sort of became some, partly about the treatment of indigenous people. I understand that it influenced the end SARS movement against police brutality in Nigeria um, in the autumn. And so, you know, you can say that's a kind of a, a positive example of uh, sort of international ideas and sort of movements crossing borders in sort of contradiction of these, as you say, you know, kind of gloomy predictions of a, you know, each country for themselves sort of meltdown of the international system that some some worried about earlier on. So yeah, that's a good point. My good news story is related, actually. I think that it has been an unexpectedly not terrible year for global climate policy. Not only did emissions fall this year for the first time in recent memory, for obvious reasons, what with people staying at home, industry shutting down and so forth. But I think possibly more significantly, because we can assume that those numbers will go back up again when the world returns to normal next year, more significantly was that there were a series of very promising commitments by global governments to emission reduction. So we had the EU upgraded its ambition for 2030 from a 40% reduction in emissions to a 55% reduction. Um, perhaps most significantly, if it actually makes good on the promise, China has said it wants to reach net zero by 2060. Both Japan and South Korea have said they want to reach net zero by 2050. And then uh, most recently, the election of Joe Biden means that the US will realign itself with the rest of the world. Obviously, it's been the, the big foot dragger over the course of this year and previously under Trump. But Biden's committed to decarbonizing US electricity production by 2035, which is hugely ambitious, and also to net zero by 2050. So suddenly, obviously, whether or not these will be observed is the big question, but it's, it's definitely good news. So lastly, as we re- review 2020 in history, I'd like to hear from us all an under-discussed story, so a story that didn't get as much coverage as perhaps it deserved, that will go down in history. This is sort of cheating because it, it happened today, but Lujain Al-Hadlul, who is the Saudi women's rights activist who was was fighting for the rights of women to drive without a guardian. She was just sentenced today to six years in prison. There was so much attention on Saudi Arabia in 2018 and 2019 for for human rights abuses because of the brutal way in which um, Jamal Khashoggi was was killed. And I think because of the pandemic and for a host of reasons, there's been less attention this year. But if we're going to remember that Saudi Arabia finally relented and gave women the right to drive, then we are certainly going to remember, or we should certainly remember, that they imprisoned the woman who made it possible. Very good example there. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman. 
on digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Ido, what about you? Yeah, mine's actually tangentially related. It's the rapprochement that there was between Israel and first the UAE, then Bahrain, and, and then latterly Morocco and Sudan, which all agreed, I think, to normalise relations with Israel and I believe to open embassies at some point. I think that was the plan. This is this is a really historic shift and it makes concrete some obviously some unofficial links that had existed for quite a while, particularly with the UAE and, and Morocco. They'd had trade links with Israel, but never diplomatic links and never kind of open diplomatic relations. And Israel previous prior to this year had only, I think, had relations with two Arab countries, so Jordan and Egypt, with whom it had signed peace treaties. And it's, it's really a shift in the balance of power and the politics of the region. It signals a kind of marginalisation of the Palestinian cause, because all the Arab countries had previously said that there would be no normalisation with Israel until the Palestinian issue had been solved with a two-state solution. So the fact that they are going back on this commitment of almost 50 years since uh, 1967 is, is, a, is a shift in, in that sense. And yeah, it's a, it's a real kind of historic change in the politics of the region, driven largely, I think, by concerns about the influence of Iran in the region and essentially all these Arab countries which are willing to join with Israel in being worried about the rise of Iran and, and wanting to contain Iranian influence in the region. And what's yours, Jeremy? So my subject that I think has been under-discussed is the, and, and this I think applies mostly to commentary in Europe, I think it is more discussed in the US and in particular in Asia, but the rise of the notion of the Indo-Pacific, you know, just to sort of, to rewind a bit, this has been in many ways, in the grand scheme of things, a good year for China. The virus originated or seems to have originated in Wuhan at the start of the year, but China, after a period of relatively brief lockdowns, managed to get the infection numbers under control and is now back to something like normality compared to the sort of locked down West. And there was a, a sort of credible project, projection came out, I think it was yesterday or the day before, um, suggesting that China's economy will now overtake that of the US in size by 2028, so earlier than previously thought. So in that sense, it's been a good year for China. But I think the other thing that's been interesting this year is the kind of growing wariness of China's might, not just in the US, where I think this is a sort of longer term concern, but also in other countries that previously perhaps were more willing to hedge their bets about about China or sort of try and find a kind of middle way between China and the US. And that applies to arguably to Europe, albeit very patchily, the EU may be on the verge of signing a frankly questionable investment agreement with China. So we'll have to see what, what happens there. But to, But to come back to my point, most interestingly, has been the sort of gradual knitting together of a, what you might call China sceptic alliance in the Indo-Pacific, particularly focused on the so-called quad of countries. So India, Japan, Australia, and the US. And I think not only has the quad been a more important format, you see more cooperation on things like military, but also other subjects like, for example, 5G provision between those four countries, but also you've seen those countries reaching out to others in that space to try and sort of weave together a network that can push back against China, not aggressively and often in different you know, with different combinations of countries working on different subjects. But you have seen, for example, countries in the region stand up for Taiwan, both 
Japan and Australia called for Taiwan to be readmitted to the World Health Organization, for example. You've seen, for example, countries like New Zealand and Vietnam involved in some of these quad formats. And you've just seen that kind of that group of countries working more tightly together, perhaps most most notably when last month India invited Australia to join its Malabar naval exercise, which is a sort of major Indian annual naval exercise in the Indian Ocean. And I think in the context of a sort of rising and 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 at times increasingly belligerent China, another feature of this year, I think that's been really interesting to watch. And I've been surprised that it hasn't been discussed more, particularly in commentary that I've seen here in Europe. So I think that's 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 something that I'd point to and, and will, will, I think, be historically significant. So that's the year in history. I'd like to just sort of finish off this podcast by turning to a few personal reflections on the year. And I'll start with the hardest. And um, what do we all think we got wrong and right about the year? So obviously, as listeners of this podcast know, got wrong that Trump would win the 2020 election. I truly was, was convinced that that was happening. I also believed at the beginning of this year that after the U.S. killed Soleimani, that, that the, this year would be characterized by the U.S. and Iran either intentionally or, or unintentionally stumbling into war against one another, which, again, as I wrote in this, this piece, I still think could have happened had there not been a pandemic, but there was a pandemic. And so it did not happen. I, I, I would just say that the thing that I was most wrong about is that, you know, when I heard about this virus in Wuhan, I did not, I, I just, it didn't even occur to me that this would be something that affected me, right? It was a news story, clearly. Uh, it was a big news story, but I I didn't see the global pandemic coming at all. The thing that I got right, or most right, was that um, I did not think that Trump would pivot into the presidency or act like a responsible elected official at any point. And that was borne out. Ido, what about you? So on the, on the things I got wrong, latterly, I I'm sort of leaning towards thinking that the UK is going to end up vaccinating its population probably a bit faster than the EU. And I thought that wouldn't be the case. But just because of the way UK bureaucracy works versus the EU, it's probably going to end up with the UK doing a bit better. And I realise that's a prediction, but it seems to have been borne out since the vaccine was first approved almost a month ago. And just Generally, I think this has been a really bad year for, for takes, just because any any take on any individual country almost inevitably just ended up with it being proven wrong in a matter of weeks or months. And that, that goes for me. I, I thought that some countries were doing really badly and then they turned out they weren't doing quite as badly on COVID and others were doing better and then they, they got caught up really badly in the second wave, which I think shows the importance of seeing this kind of in seeing the bigger picture here and taking a longer term view. To be fair to you both, I think you also got various other things right that you're not you're not admitting. I would, for example, point to Emily. I thought your piece about Trump's idea that he could terrify the suburbs into voting for him and not uh, Biden with sort of scary images of anarchist Antifa protesters taking over their uh, neighborhoods. You you wrote about how Trump didn't get the suburbs and how the suburbs had also changed. I think that that has that did turn out to be very prescient based on the thank you, Jeremy. Results and either I'd also flag your piece with our occasional contributor Felix Light in Moscow, about looking ahead to the I believe it was bef- it was before the the, the, the Belarusian election. You, you you flagged up many of the frankly when it was an issue that wasn't being widely discussed in the sort of international media certainly wasn't a major feature on my radar. Pointed out the sort of the fault lines there that then kind of proved very relevant afterwards with the explosion of the 
protest movements. I think I think there are those and many other cases. I think you you can you can be a bit kinder on yourselves. Okay, so I can I can actually I can measure my failures and successes quite quite accurately because I sat down at the start of the year to write ten predictions about the year ahead, which I'm actually just going through now and grading for a piece. <laughs> I am I'm truly marking my own homework uh, for a piece uh, that will go up on the New States and website soon. Interesting to reread, very, written in a very different world. Like you, Emily, I because this was written, I believe, two days after the killing of Qasem Soleimani, I, I, it was very much influenced, I think, by that, the environment at that point, where it seemed like there was a real chance that things could escalate and you could end up with some sort of war with, with, with Iran. I didn't predict an outright war. I said it was more, there was more likely to be a sort of proxy war between the US and, and Iran, played out in sort of the usual arenas, sort of Lebanon, Iraq, Yemen, and so forth. And actually, I underestimated the extent to which the Iranian government, admittedly perhaps under the pressure of coronavirus, which hit hard there before it did in many other countries, somewhat backed down. It was actually very cautious and calculated about its response. And the year certainly ends not, I would go as far as to say positively with regards to US or West, Western Iranian relations, but you know, with the prospect of the US rejoining the nuclear deal in a happier or less unhappy place, perhaps, than it did at the start. So I got that wrong. Like you, Emily, I also thought that Trump would win. I said at the start of the year, I thought that the Democratic sort of electoral coalition was too disperse. I also think I slightly overstated the how significant India-Pakistan conflict would be through the year. Obviously, there too, tensions remain, but it hasn't been the dominant or major subject that I expected it would. In fact, you've actually, we actually had more discussion about China-India relations with, for example, the uh, the clash in the Himalayas in the summer. But what did I get right? I thought the UK would get would get a deal with the EU on a trade deal with the EU, and uh, albeit a sort of fairly unfavourable and meagre one. So that was that was born out on December the 24th when that was sealed. I'd also point out that there was a lot of kind of talk early in, in the spring about how international cooperation didn't collapse to the extent that some thought. There was there was a certain amount of commentary that said, you know, you know, oh, the pandemic's going to break the EU apart. It will be each country for themselves. And, you know, the, the EU did look pretty chaotic and sort of incoherent at the start of the pandemic. But we then did see the the agreement on a on a recovery package worth 750 billion euros with a sort of taboo breaking use of common debt, which really frankly, went a lot further than what a lot of people were saying the EU would ever do. And as always, the EU rumbles on with its problems and its tensions and so forth. But I I do think I was right to say that there was a sort of underlying resilience to the union that would come out in moments of stress like that. So I'll, I'll chalk that up as a as a hit. So onwards to next year. And both Emily and I will be writing uh, some predictions for 2021 that will be made available on the New Statesman website in the next few days. So look out for those and hold us to account on them at the end of next year. So another quick personal question. Um, let's all just mention a reported piece that we found particularly memorable. It's been a difficult year for getting out and actually visiting places, talking to people, doing that sort of shoe leather reporting that frankly needs to be a big part of international coverage. But can can we all kind of give an example of, of, of one of the relatively few cases where we could get out and, and do that sort of journalism? I will say for myself, and I've tried to be very careful about going out and reporting during the pandemic, but back in the winter um, for the New Statesman, I reported a piece on the rise of this phenomenon of, of denouncing your fellow citizens as anti-nationals in India and reported from Jaipur and Kolkata and Delhi. And in particular, going to JMI to Jamia, which is the, the Muslim majority university in Delhi and speaking with the students there who went out to protest the rise of 
Hindu nationalism in India at, at great personal risk and who spoke to me at, at some risk to themselves is is something that I will very much remember. I recently went to Azerbaijan on the invitation of the government to have a look around the territory of Nagorno Karabakh, which they recently reconquered after 30 years of occupation by Armenian separatists. It was a very odd trip. You can read my write-up on the New Statesman website, but it was kind of pretty choreographed and we didn't get much access. And we had a very touchy government minder who was uh, really not very happy when we tried to do things that were not on the official itinerary and meet people who, who the government didn't particularly like. But it was... For me, it was a it was it was a really enlightening experience, and I think there is there is additional depth to coverage informed by an actual trip to somewhere, which is quite hard to replicate. Unfortunately, sit, sat at your desk, possibly working from home and, and calling people. So I hope that once once restrictions are lifted, all of us will be able to do more of it in a way that is just uh, impossible at present. In my case, I'd certainly in Europe, we had that sort of point in the high summer where the spring lockdown had sort of subsided and, and some of the, the rules were, were relaxed sort of for a few months. And I was, um, I'm glad to have been able to use that chance, that, that little window to do a reporting trip to Italy. I, I traveled down from Germany all the way down to Naples to write about Italy as the first Western country to experience a major outbreak of the pandemic. It was a very sort of searing psychological experience for the for a country that in many ways has has had a difficult couple of decades, frankly. Its its role in Europe was questioned, the sort of the basis of Italian society and Italian culture, which is of course so tactile and based around sort of common spaces and common sort of activities was sort of sort of threatened and, and put under stress. And, and it was a very interesting trip uh, talking to people about how that had affected the, their lives, but also looking then at how it was that was then influencing Italian politics and Italy's sense of its place in Europe. So I enjoyed that. And we will post links to all three of those pieces and perhaps a couple of others that we've, we've sort of touched on in this conversation on the web page for this podcast episode, which you can find along with all of our previous episode pages at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. And I'd just like to say before Emily concludes with a, and I quote, a surprise. <laughs> yes, right. that's right. Before we were, uh, treated slash subjected to that i will i would just like to say a very final and big thank you to all of our listeners for listening to us this year it's been fantastic the interest and enthusiasm that we've received from people listening to this podcast we tried to cover world affairs in a sort of in an intelligent and long-term perspective getting beyond the, the daily headlines and, and talking to some interesting people along the way and if you're looking for some interesting listening in the twilight of the year or indeed the start uh, the first first weeks of next year I'd, I'd really encourage you to go and have listened to some of our previous episodes which are all as I say there on the homepage newsstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast as well as on in all the usual places on your Googles and uh, Apples and Spotify's and so forth. Finally, Ido and Emily, what wh- out of all of those episodes, I'd like to hear what what was your personal favourite over 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 the year? If you had to pick one, the one that was memorable to me was the conversation with Fintan O'Toole. Yes, both both because we uh, he was recording from the west of Ireland and we had some technical difficulties. But I'm also I should probably act like I've been here before. But I'm such a fan of his writing, and so the fact that he was on this podcast was like, wait, we're like you're on our podcast. I I thought it was. A really interesting discussion on various national exceptionalisms. And I think it's useful to reminder when you're criticizing your own country's American or British or whatever exceptionalism that um, that we're not exceptional in our exceptionalisms. What about you, Ido? It's actually not an episode that I 
sometimes co-host, uh, co-hosted. But the I found the episode that you did with Mark Lowcock, the UN's humanitarian chief, really, really interesting. You covered some fascinating kind of important questions that have frankly been ignored, in at least in the rich world, because countries are just so focused on their own responses to the pandemic that they're barely thinking about how the rest of the world is coping. But you covered some really important themes, including in particular that in a lot of places, particularly in, in the developing world, the economic hit caused by COVID has been a more significant negative effect than the actual health costs. And and I interviewed Mark and had a really interesting chat with him. And uh, I thought that you built on my interview with him really well in, in that podcast. And it was a, a great lesson. So I'd recommend everyone to go and listen to that. I'd say for, for my part, very difficult to choose because I've, I found a lot of these discussions really fascinating. I'd say I'd have two runners up and a winner. The, I, I, the two I really enjoyed were Lizzie Porter on the Beirut Blast, our occasional contributor from Lebanon, now now based in Iraq, called in from Erbil and and was just fascinating on the kind of the, the the backdrop to that calamity and moving on what it was like to also live through it in this in this sort of poor poor battered city of, of Beirut so I enjoyed that as a contrast to that I think my other runner up would be actually when I when India was on the was co-hosting and we spoke to Tom Rivet Karnak one of the architects of the Paris agreement in what was a surprisingly uplifting genuinely and movingly uplifting and optimistic discussion about the kind of the possibilities out there when it comes to dealing with with climate change usually seen as such a sort of gloomy issue but i'd say that my my all-round favorite was probably our 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 episode with elif shafak talking about turkey and erdogan's decision to turn the Hagia sophia into a a mosque i think just the 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 kind of cultural historical broader international themes that that she kind of brought into it i think were were fantastic and just sort of left me with a lot of food for thought so that would be my my all-round winner but difficult to pick them all out with that it's I time. It's time for whatever Emily has in store. <laughs> I have promised a surprise and I will now deliver. Ahem. Twas near the end of 2020 and all through World Review, the hosts were scrambling, wondering what to do. The listeners had tuned in. They were ready to hear whether we could find a way to wrap up this strange year. We discussed the pandemic, the EU, elections, Eastern Europe, India, made political projections. Jeremy in his cap and I in my frock and input from sometime co-host Ido Vok. We couldn't figure it out, and it just made us sick, even with the help of our producer, St. Nick. When into our heads popped a vision so true, the way to end this year was just to say thank you. Thank you for listening, for your questions, for fun. We hope you'll join us again in 2021. Wow. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yep. Emily, I would, from now on, you will be writing all of your columns for us in verse. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ido and Emily, for being with us this episode and previous episodes. And thanks again to producer Nick. Listeners, thank you for joining us and until next week. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 